0: using those tools at hand that you're comfortable with And pushing yourself out of the comfort zone is one of the easiest low-hanging fruits, there we go with the puns, that we can do. Capitalizing on the Walking Dead apocalyptic connections. And so there's neat things that we have to think outside of the box to really capture this nonlinear demographic. It's the due diligence of somebody in that room to bring up and be the devil's advocate and bring up the negative side of things so that you're not being exclusive. To your thinking.
1: Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian.
2: And I'm Sophia.
1: And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers.
2: This is the Environmental Education Podcast where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode,
0: you need people on boards that are representative of the generations that will be visiting your organizations for the next 30 to 50 years for example botanical gardens the people that will be buying plants will are are the millennials the gen xers the gen z's and so they will be purchasing plants for the next 30 to 50 years but we're not seeing a lot of grasping of that demographic
2: garden could use a little love. Though many of the plants within it are thriving, pockets of invasive non-native species are bigger than they were this time last year. This is a site that Todd Beasley has seen a lot during his 25 years of experience in horticulture and education, which has included stops at three botanical gardens. Todd is one of the leading thinkers and doers in the realm of horticulture, and he shares his expertise in roles with the Environmental Education Association of South Carolina and the University of South Carolina. He sat down with Ian to discuss ways to optimize school gardens and make botanical gardens more culturally relevant.
0: This is my first official podcast.
1: Oh, first official podcast. So you're, this is going to be the first of many plant puns in this episode where we're talking a lot about gardening and horticulture, but you're very green to the podcast world. That would be an accurate statement.
0: Coming out of my pod. Oh. I see a pod.
1: Nice. <laughs> see this two that's two in like fifteen seconds, and we've we haven't even really officially started this yet, so <laughs> we're on a roll. All right. Good afternoon, Todd. We're both in Eastern time. Sometimes when I'm interviewing people it's tomorrow or yesterday. But in this case we are both in Eastern time. It is a little bit after three PM. So how are things?
0: Things are moving right along here in South Carolina.
1: Excellent. You've mainly avoided the cold snap that has affected much of Eastern North America all the way down into Texas, but I digress. It's maybe not a good sign that I've digressed only like a minute into this interview, but such is the way.
0: But the weather is directly related to our horticulture connections.
1: Excellent. Well, that's a perfect segue. So horticulture, and we're going to unpack a lot of aspects of horticulture today, and we're going to first start in schools. And in your mind, in some ways, horticulture is quite misunderstood in schools. Anything that you want to elaborate on that to get us started?
0: Yeah. So that word horticulture, it's a beautiful word, but I think there are a lot of people that still don't really know what horticulture really means. And Hmm. we have to break it down into the basic definition of the art and science of caring for plants. But we really, if we're thinking about horticulture in schools, we have to think about this youth gardening movement that we're in that really we can trace back to the early 90s as the current cycle that began. And we have to really break it down even further that about the the constraints and the barriers that have been heavily researched for the last 30 years that were preventing educators from being successful with their gardening efforts. But a lot of the newer research really shows that those barriers are being um, navigated and teachers are to some degree successful in obtaining money, obtaining resources, um, whether it's uh, partnerships in the community, whether it's tools, whether it's plants, um, extending their budget, they're connecting to the curricula uh, that is out there. And so we, we know that teachers are able to navigate the barriers, but the question still is, There are some of us out there that see school gardens popping up. Teachers love to create. And I want to be really careful with that statement. They, they love to create, but what happens when those gardens have to be maintained on an annual basis? And so we start to look at that as well. That is definitely a barrier. Many of these garden programs are not institutionalized. To me, that is one of the strongest barriers right now that prevent ultimate school garden success. Environmental education is not mandated in the United States and youth gardening falls under environmental education. And we, when we do not institutionalize garden programs at schools, the question mark that comes to mind is why? Is it because environmental education is not mandated? or is it something deeper with when you look at the demographics and diversity of schools whether it's low-income high population african-american schools that we can maybe theorize that school gardens connect too much to historical oppression with the land that these programs will not be institutionalized do we look at affluent high proportioned caucasian schools is there white whiteness there, white privilege that we don't do these types of things. We reserve it for, you know, the working class, for the middle income schools. And so looking at new theories, I think would be crucial to helping this new schoolyard movement so that these granting agencies don't see their money, you know, going to efforts that then become basically gardens that go on the wayside or raised five years ten years after they were developed because then you have questions of tokenism and they're connected to we're going to appeal the appeal to the educator right now but what happens when that educator goes and nobody picks up those school garden projects again and so there's a lot of new ways we can think about what are the real real barriers that have to be navigated now as we we go really deeper into this post-covid reconnecting mm. to nature movement that we're seeing that was a very loaded <laughs> loaded topic there
1: yeah lots to unpack in that so just kind of backing up for a lot of educators because this is not mandated it's just kind of an extra thing that they do if they have the time and energy but maybe another project comes up or maybe their family expands and they don't maybe have as much extra time as they thought they had. And that's where, as you say, you get into that stage where a project that gets off the ground, there's another pun, successfully at the beginning, the garden doesn't get maintained, it gets overgrown, it becomes an eyesore. And then all of a sudden it's kind of like, you know, at the staff meeting, it's like, what what are you guys going to do with the garden? Are you going to address this? Should we just wipe it out? And all this great momentum that had been built is just suddenly gone. So we always like to focus on the, the solution side of things. What are the barriers to getting this mandated on a, a nationwide basis and even beyond?
0: Well, what immediately comes to my mind is this notion that you and I have talked about horticulture being misunderstood. Hmm. And one of the things that I teach to my pre-service teachers often regarding science education is STEM, STEAM, whatever you want to call it, using science, technology, engineering and math. The majority of us teach these classes in four walls and a ceiling. Well, in order to understand STEM and STEAM, you have to understand that what you see underneath the microscope originates outside and you have to understand the natural process, you, you have to understand the natural cycles in order to understand what's going on underneath that microscope. What's going on with how engineers replicate design from nature and oh, biomimicry studies and environmental ed is, is not mandated and it's not connecting to all the demographics in, I think, appealing ways when we're not getting kids outside and there's a lot in there too.
1: Is part of it the liability concern, which on one hand, if you're going off site, that's one thing, but if you're still on the school grounds, there's just so much less red tape. You don't have to typically fill out permission forms, but is it still that liability of, you know, what if somebody gets a cut? (laughs) If you've got raspberry bushes, what if somebody gets scratched and they're bleeding? Is that a big part of this discussion?
0: Yeah, I, I think there's always a fear with administrators, there's a fear with parents. You know, sometimes children have to fall in order to learn.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, we we have PE classes that kids get hurt in. You could probably walk across the school campus through grass and have higher chance of being stung by a bee who's pollinating clover in the grass versus working in a garden with a teacher. It takes a special educator to have that OCD kind of personality to not only, work with the kids, being an active participant with the kids, but also watching them at the same time. And so I think going back to one of those barriers of why we don't institutionalize this, when you would think about the demographic of teachers right now in the 1990s, we saw huge attrition rates of teachers that were facing retirement and limited recruitment. So we were faced with an aging out population. So with the blow up of technology and kids be more accustomed to being inside, you lost a lot of teachers that probably had access to the outdoors when they were children themselves and had those huge background experiences where they were comfortable with teaching. But if you look at some of the training sites, Project Learning Tree, Project Wet, Project Wild, you know, those are wonderful projects. But what I see oftentimes are teachers that come to these trainings and they are so unprepared themselves to be even ready to teach in the outdoors and so oftentimes you can think about it could even be a an issue not only with the teacher being disconnected from nature but also just really unprepared to be comfortable working with kids multiple kids multiple classes all day long and until we can institutionalize it and get these teachers comfortable and trained, which is a higher ed kind of component as well, then we're just going to see this kind of cyclical nature of startups and then a lot of these gardens falling on the wayside.
1: In your role with University of South Carolina, you are tackling this issue head on. Why getting teachers outside, pre-service teachers outside?
2: Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. This patch of garlic mustard has really spread. What a shame that such a beautiful, fragrant plant can be so invasive.
1: I'm sure the roots of a lot of... There's another plant pun. We are just on fire today. But the, the roots of a lot of this probably goes back to a lot of what you hear people like Richard Louv say about there's just so much less time spent outside, so if a teacher when they were a child, spent very little time outside, when they become a teacher, they're not going to be naturally as comfortable outside. How do we get people being comfortable outside, whether they're teaching quote unquote environmental education or not? I mean, now with the pandemic, you have to be six feet apart and so on. A lot more teachers are going outside to teach other topics that don't necessarily fall under that environmental ad umbrella. But how do, how do we fill that gap if they don't have the on the ground experience of being outdoors.
0: I think majority of people that go into teaching have a creative mind and they have a drive mm-hmm. to learn. And so I think part of it is that self-guiding explorative nature that teachers to have should have if they are passionate about their their topics that they teach, then part of that is self-guided professional development to have these experiences. But through insti- I, guess, I guess through institutionalizing a program, then that means we are committed to professionally training and developing our teachers to become accustomed to being in the outdoors. And it's, it doesn't have to be just doing gardening projects outside. It, it could be as simple as walking out and using what you already have that is comfortable as kind of a slow immersion into what the bigger greater picture could be Um, but i I think in order to be comfortable in the outdoors the obvious first step is walking outside and using that phone that's in your hand and instead of taking pictures of people liberty hyde bailey mentioned this in the early 1900s instead of taking pictures of people take pictures of plants and one year later you will be amazed at looking through your pictures of what you have seen what you have discovered and the new greater appreciation that you'll have for the outdoors and so i think that using those tools at hand that you're comfortable with and pushing yourself out of the comfort zone is one of the easiest low-hanging fruits there we go with the puns nice that we can do <laughs>
1: And comfort really is such a key word in this because there really is no perfect type of weather. I mean, you ask someone, what is the perfect type of weather? I guess it's weather that you don't really notice one way or the other. You don't have to put on special clothes. You don't have to really change anything. But that's pretty uncommon. And of course, it's different for different people. So it's getting over that initial step of, okay, maybe it's a little cooler than I like, but okay, let's work with that. Or maybe my students are like, oh, do we have to go outside? It's a little bit too hot is that reason to just shut it down and say you know what let's forget it let's go back inside it's easier or maybe use that okay yeah it is a little bit hot how are we going to use that i mean how if you were in a situation like that and you've got a class and say middle schoolers and it's a little hotter than usual and they're like oh it's too hot let's not go outside would you use that as a teaching moment
0: i think you can carefully craft it to where it becomes not only a teaching moment, but still be encouraging and passionate enough that the students see your enthusiasm as a mechanism for them to embrace this idea. But there's also on uh, many of our school campuses are designed in very similar ways with one story, two story buildings that depend upon where the sun is. And, you know, most schools in urban areas and rural rural areas often have you know wonderful uh, established trees that can be properly designed to be shaded spaces and using that as a great science lesson okay it's hot outside let's go see what temperature really is outside let's compare it on the concrete on the asphalt in the middle of the playground in the shade and doesn't necessarily mean you have to be out there for 45 minutes, but just those small acts of maybe 15 minutes. You know, a great teacher switches gears between every five to 15 minutes max. So yes. that just those simple acts of walking outside for, you know, a quick five to seven to eight minute lesson and then coming back inside, that movement right there does wonders. And just having those small mini lessons can be a part of this slow immersion. But I always advocated that PE could also be used as a wonderful time to going outside and doing these types of projects connected to gardening on a whole separate note. But there's there's ways to carefully navigate it, even with your art classes, too, to get that slow immersion into where teachers are starting to feel comfortable.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are just so many cross-curricular connections with literature, you know, going outside and observing what you see or creating a narrative starting with observations that are sparked by found objects you know you you go out and you find pine cones and you look at the clover in the grass use that as a starting point create a narrative boom all of a sudden you've got a literature lesson so I mean there's a whole other discussion about should we even have school subjects at all or to what extent should we how much here comes another pun right down the chute cross-pollination of school subjects how much of that should we have and that's a rabbit hole we could get into, but we'd probably be here for like two or three hours. So,
0: you know, morning meeting is a wonderful time before the onslaught of the heat of the day is mm. going outside morning meeting time. And, you know, mindfulness in schools seems to be another one of the big trends going on. And, you know, horticulture therapy was my version of mindfulness before it became mindfulness, but just going outside and doing those morning meetings where you have a bit of yoga involved, a little bit of quiet time just to take in. And I'm sure there's plenty of places on campuses that can be improved or modified for these types of experiences.
1: For sure, and we hear so much nowadays, I think in particular about sit spots and even just saying, all right, we're gonna take five minutes. And I think in the fast paced life that so many people live, five minutes is nothing. But when you actually pause, And truly become mindful five minutes is quite long and it's remarkable what you can experience and it you don't have to be in the amazon rainforest you can be sitting on the grass in your schoolyard and there's pretty remarkable biodiversity of just plants and insects on a manicured lawn surprisingly if you take that time to look
0: and that whole concept of nature blindness that popped up probably 15, 20, 25 years ago, you you see different points in time where it's been referenced, but the fact that school age children could sit on a bench surrounded by, you know, this perfectly designed bed and not pay one bit of attention to the beautiful flora around it. And, and we, we call that nature blindness and just yeah. um, having those short five minute mini lessons to point these things out and put, your lessons in action, you know, they, you can build on that.
1: Yeah, no question. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit.
2: Before taking the heaping pile of garlic mustard to the compost bin, he collects a few of the fresher leaves. They do, after all, make for a nice salad.
1: Let's pivot. Certainly that was one of the words of the year in 2020, and we're not too far into 2021. But let's pivot over to a concept that you've been doing a lot of work on, which is cross-generational experiential cultural relevance. And kind of crystallizing that a bit more is you see that some of the mission statements in botanical gardens in particular are a bit problematic. They all in somewhere or another reference connecting plants to society. But what does that actually mean?
0: Let's unpack that because it, it, it's a positive that we want to get all generations all demographics into Botanical Gardens to connect them to plants and how we associate plants with society is part of that mission statement. Um, Part of our struggle with Botanical Gardens is there is this um, classism perception by many demographics that view gardens as really geared towards the higher end of the spectrum, the affluent culture, that mm. this has no meaning and relevance to me and my life, but we are, we're, we're making, we're making great progress in getting more diversity into gardens. Um, but we also have to think about really about the exhibits that we do. And, you know, gardens are based off of the size that their mission is, the the, the, the their budgets really dictate what size a garden is. So we have small gardens, we have mid-sized gardens, we have large gardens, all based on their budgets. And of course, we have the super-sized gardens. Well, these super-sized gardens with their 25 plus million dollar budgets, they, they are able to tap into their donor base. They are able to tap into their coffers a lot easier than our smaller and mid-sized level gardens. And so what we see is really, extravagant exhibits coming to our large gardens which is great um, we see things like chihuly in the garden we see big art exhibits we see legos in the garden and those events which i call it events they're important because they're the bread and butter and bring in attendance but it's also you know sometimes a very linear demographic that comes so let's say legos i would argue that oftentimes it's very linear it's it's mom and little toddler child and, and younger kids coming in. And you know, Chihuly with the glass exhibits, it's great. It's wonderful. Uh, gardens make a lot of money out of that. And yes, there is a direct connection with getting people to see the gardens, but our mid-sized and smaller gardens can't afford this. And what is the take home message that we're seeing here? What is the take home? What is the direct connection to plants and society that glass pieces in the garden has. I mean you have to you have to really push some of those classes that gardens have. So so for me, I, I I've talked with I've talked with about 12 executive directors and senior level positions and mid-level managers across the country with different botanical gardens, different sizes, and I, and and I pose that question, is there a need for kind of a model to extend on this idea of exhibit with museum quality topics that really connect to society and what's out there versus direct obvious plant connections. Like the Savage Garden was a great one that I I think came out, Franklin Conservatory, I'm pretty sure that's where it came out. And that was a great exhibit connecting to carnivorous plants, but it was really, uh, it was a large exhibit that had a lot of traveling cost, again, something that a smaller mid-size level garden could have potential challenges with setting up. And so I'm looking at this model of what does exhibit panels like a real museum quality exhibit panel traveling exhibit look like with thematic strands that really push this idea of social questions of bringing in diverse demographics that you typically don't see in gardens and having a model in a box that also comes with a set of courses, events, exhibits, revenue generating ideas for cooking, for children, gift shop, all inclusive package that is really um, economically feasible under the $7,000 range for six weeks that a small garden or mid-sized garden can really, really consider doing based on what their demographic is in their area. So for example, uh, and a lot of this is proprietary right now, and I have to bring out that cautionary tale, but you know, think about gardens that are near military installations. There's a great theme connected there to ideas of what gardens can do and how plants have played a role in the military and bringing in that culture of retired veterans and active duty personnel.
1: What role do gardens play for the military in particular?
0: So if we think about plants in general, we have biochemical warfare that is Mm -hmm. a direct reproduction of plants. We have the history of camouflage there. We have biodegradable bullets. We have the importance of land management that many installations have taken on in the last 25 years because the land that they have is the only land that they have and they can't expand that land. So they have to take care of that land. And there's a lot of federal biologists and just scientists that are posted on these, these installations that there is a great connection to aspects that probably the general public has really never thought about or even heard of related to what goes on behind the scenes on a military installation that's connected to flora and fauna. That would be a great component for a museum quality exhibit for a botanical garden to present. You know, the the camouflage whole thing, the spot the sniper, the role of how we embrace and train with plants to train our soldiers to um, be able to survive in conditions, the edible food sources. You know, Survivor Saturdays was something we did at San Antonio Botanical Garden with an ex green beret, and huh. people loved it, capitalizing on the walking dead apocalyptic. Yeah. <laughs> Connections. And so there's, there's neat things that we have to think outside of the box to really capture this nonlinear demographic of underrepresentative cultures within cultures that need to be visiting these organizations.
1: What are some of those other social, you mentioned social questions before. What are some of the other social questions that you think a lot of botanical gardens could stand to explore a lot more?
0: Um, So some of the work that the APGA is doing, American Public Garden Association is really looking at this um, inclusivity, diversity, equity, accessibility. So um, one that comes to mind is, you know, some of our gardens that have been around for a while have architectural style that looks representative of the antebellum South. And that's a turnoff to often uh, to people of color in South. So how do we look at this architectural style and try to soften the buildings up with plant material would be just one topic. We see, um, we see hiring practices. And one of the things that's come up in discussion with uh, a couple of botanical garden executive directors that I have had recently is the notion of when we get cover letters and this push for cultural diversity in in a cover letter. What do you do when uh, you have statements that I, for instance, I'm a white gay horticulturist and you put that in a cover letter and it's very important for us to remain very non biased. And so what are the strategies that are appropriate for horticulture or botanical gardens to look at with their hiring practices to ensure that yes, we are hiring diverse candidates, but we're not hiring candidates simply because they're stating that they have those diversity aspects. And so, right how do we Yeah. So these are questions that are are just some of them are new. Some of them have been around. You know, the the um, U.S. Park Service has been looking at diversity since the 80s. They were very progressive with looking at how they would address diversity and getting more people of color into the national park systems. They were looking at this in the 1980s. And so that's a good platform to use. We know there's a lot of barriers, but um, you know, hiring practices, even looking at the design of your pathways and the type of aggregate for walking is important for us to look at. The types of passive educational language of how do you, um, how do you incorporate the impact and contributions of diverse people in horticulture? How do you embrace that from botanical garden to botanical garden and land acknowledgement is another one. Um, So that's important. And I know Stonely and Natural Lands um, Garden in Philadelphia, the Villanova area has done some really great work with, Land acknowledgement with their natural lands. Um, and so that's a, a model that I like to promote to But it's those type of conversations that are starting to come in. Uh, it's also looking at board composition. Many nonprofits have very I think the term that a lot of us throw out sometime is the old guard. You have a very similar board composition of over 60 predominantly business minded individuals, mostly white males, and we're starting to see some movement in getting more women on boards, but we need more people of color on boards and we need more, we need more industry diversity. We need people that represent the jobs that these nonprofits actually cater to. So let's use Botanical Gardens again. So We have educators, we have horticulturists, we have marketing individuals. So we need to get people that come from the horticulture background, from marketing background, from education background to serve on these boards. And in my opinion, board members are volunteer, non-paying or non-paid consultants. And I think we need to really look at that concept instead of always looking at who these individuals are and how deep their pockets are and who are they connected to in, in society. And that's important for your donor relationships, yes, but you also need an even balanced blended of individuals that are representative of the community, have community connections and have connections to the professions at those organizations.
1: Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishnabek, here on Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty.
2: It's surprising that more people don't get into foraging for garlic mustard leaves, especially when you can remove an invasive plant at the same time. It's the definition of a win-win.
1: So what I hear from a lot of organizations is, well, we try to be diverse, everybody is welcome, yet it kind of stops there. And on one hand, you can't force people, I mean, you you can't force people to say you are hired because of, because you belong to this demographic, because that gets into the idea of tokenism, which is very problematic in many ways. But what are, I guess what I'm really asking is what are some barriers that aren't apparent that prevent a more diverse composition of a board, despite the fact that a board, generally speaking, is totally welcoming?
0: The first thought that comes to my mind is the lack of knowledge that people have in potentially serving on these boards. I, I'm i sure a model exists, so I don't want to be quoted as saying that I don't see boards actively advertising board openings. I'm sure there's a model out there that is really great. I know, um, I believe it's Birmingham, Botanical Garden under Tom Underwood has a great model where they have a junior board to get um kind of the younger next generation of executive board members trained and and to come on and bring in some of that diversity but beyond you know a junior board what I I don't see a lot of is the active promotion to the greater community that there are board openings and this is how you conserve and these you don't necessarily have to have these credentials and qualifications. What I do see is that a board opening comes up, the inner workings of the board has that knowledge and they go out amongst their, their um, circle of friends and they recruit from within. Right. And, you know, that's not necessarily the best model. You know, we, we know there has to be fiscal responsibility in in nonprofits and, and that's that, but, but that perpetuates this, Cycle of having a lack of diversity on the boards because we recruit from within our own rankings. We, we are not comfortable with going out beyond our circle and actively recruiting. And so I think there's needs to be a mechanism that is welcoming, but also is safe for dialogue for people to feel this comfort level and safe level bring in and say, Hey, I am a representative of this community. And what I, when I come to your organization, I do not see representatives from my community. And I would like to be a part of this and how to get my zip code into your area. And I would love to be able to serve as your liaison to this community because board members Not only have that governance of executive directors, but part of their mission is to sell that organization to the greater community for membership and by having representatives from zip codes that are not necessarily uh, representative at those organizations is, you know, I think a really great strategy that has to be carefully crafted and strategized on how you're going to recruit those members beyond just word of mouth within the inner circle.
1: Right. Well, it seems to be human nature that we go with the people we know. And a lot of people get jobs because somebody knows someone who knows somebody and so on and so forth. But you're right, making that more active outreach to the community as opposed to just going with the people that you know, the people in your inner circle. That's a step that a lot of organizations that claim to be welcoming don't always take. And maybe it's time that more of them did take that step.
0: It also, I think, goes into what type of board you have. Is it a strictly a, a governance board or is it a working board? And that plays a little bit of role into how, yeah, how we think difference. about this too. So, you know, we, we do need to mention that, but even those governance boards still need to have representatives from the community you know i I like to use the analogy of you know when nine people in the room are agreeing about something it's the due diligence of somebody in that room to bring up and be the devil's advocate and bring up the negative side of things so you've done your due diligence and have had those conversations so that you're not being exclusive to your thinking and and i think that's where extremely diverse candidates play a role in in bringing you know that different mindset in and and, and I think there's still a lot of fear from certain boards em- embracing a different demographic and and we forget about those cultures and demographics don't always have to be necessarily people of color versus caucasian it can be cultures within cultures you know it can be the blue collar oh, yeah. Caucasians versus the the uh, white collar or green collar type mentality so it's that's where I go back to having representatives from the industry as well and an age diversity you know again you need you need people on boards that are representative of the generations that will be visiting your organizations for the next 30 to 50 years for example Botanical Gardens the people that will be buying plants will, are, are the millennials, the Gen Xers, the Gen Zs. And so they will be purchasing plants for the next 30 to 50 years, but we're not seeing a lot of grasping of that demographic on board representation. And they're the ones that want the experiential value. They're the ones that want that take-home type um, experience versus going and looking at exhibits and not having anything really to take home and replicate in their own gardens or to push that thinking. And so we we need that generation that has gone through the education system from the 90s and the 2000s where collaborative education was really pushed, that experiential value was really pushed and we need those individuals on board these um, organizations now.
1: Definitely. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host Jade Harvey Barrel tell you the rest. Take it away, Jade.
3: Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like Busy Bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit, outdoor resource store you can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca so whether you're a teacher educator parent or just a general nature geek there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into did i cover everything there ian
1: definitely thanks jade so yeah earthy chats check it out on your favorite podcast app
2: He tosses the plants into the compost bin where the microbes will get to work. This soil is going to be rich and dark in short order.
1: We've almost come to the end of the line here, but I just want to ask, what has you excited in, say, the next two or three months? Spring is coming. What are you excited about?
0: We've had a, um, for South Carolina, we've had a, uh, a, a, fairly cool winter. I'm excited about spring. I think it's going to be a really great spring. Regarding plant displays, um, I'm excited about my own work. I've got several projects going on, and one is this concept of hortication and this possible expanding on this topic of exhibits and really offering kind of a new model based on what I've learned from my conversations from cohorts from across the country. Environmental Ed in South Carolina, we have a really great affiliate uh, the North American Association of Environmental Education. Um, so I'm definitely excited of about EEASC and the work that NAAEE is doing, as well as what you and Green Teacher are doing. They all cross over. And so I, I think there's a, a really great opportunity for all of us to really push youth gardening environmental education through our platforms and collaborative efforts as people are starting to strategize on what they're going to do post covid and you know yeah. this refound connection to nature you know in 2019 the average person spent $500 on horticulture supplies ranging from plants to soil mulch paving, paving soil I would guess that that price has probably gone up another hundred to two hundred and fifty dollars based on where you are, so I'm excited that people are reconnecting and there's a refound interest in in gardens and and i I think capitalizing on that, writing about it, researching about it, and getting that message out is is kind of exciting for the next next three to six months.
1: No question. I mean the pandemic has in some ways forced a lot of people to rethink their relationship with green spaces and of course no one would say hey it's great that covid happened so that we could do this but there has been this opportunity with less ability to travel far and abroad people are spending a lot more time in the local garden the local park their own garden and hopefully that carries over and it sounds like that we've built enough momentum that there's hope that it will
0: Absolutely. If if you're not able to get out and about, then you bring nature to your door, and it's the same mentality for schools. If we're constrained by field trips and expenses for that, then you bring the field trip experience alive on site, and so I think that's exciting. But we, you know, we'll continue to strategize, and I think it's a great time for uh, the revitalization of these programs and what we're we're collectively doing. You know it's all horticulture can be a part of environmental ed environmental ed could be a part of horticulture um, so they um, they definitely uh, tag-team each other They're companion plantings in the educational landscape so that was my ending pun there
1: <laughs> a perfect way to bookend things well who doesn't love to get their hands dirty even just a little bit whether it's in a garden or otherwise thank you so much Todd for joining us today
0: Absolutely, it's been my pleasure and I appreciate being invited. With
2: some long overdue weeding at the school garden done, Todd is off to the local botanical garden. He'll use those garlic mustard leaves in a salad later this afternoon. It's also got him thinking, maybe it's time for a new exhibit about foraging local plants. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Nesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon.
1: That was a lot to dig into.
0: Just seeding the world.
1: Seeding the world. Sowing our seeds of inspiration.
0: So when when would you guys start your warm season vegetable garden up there in May? Would it be May?
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty well May. I mean, some Aprils are fairly warm, but you never... What they always say in Southern Ontario is don't start planting anything until the May long weekend really because you can still get some really cool nights where it can get down right around zero degrees celsius and 32 fahrenheit right through may like last year we had quite a bit of snow at the-